get back into our study on creeds and confessions, and we're going to take a little bit of a, uh, not a detour today, but we're going to take a road, uh, hence a little, little picture there of a road, and I want to say something about this picture. This picture is in the old town, it's in Turkey today, uh, it's in the old town of Nicaea, uh, where the Nicene Council was held in 325, uh, that hopefully we'll be talking about here over the next few weeks, or in the next few weeks. And uh, so I was happy to find uh, they've done some digging and they've actually uncovered actual ruins and actual roads in the town. And we are today going to begin to talk about Orthodoxy's creedal clarity, the road to Nicaea. And to do that, we need to do two different things. We're going to have to talk about politics and religion, those two things that nobody's supposed to talk about, right? Well, today in Sunday school, we're going to have politics, and in the service this afternoon, uh, after Sunday school, we'll have religion, I suppose, because today we're just going to be talking about politics, all right? Uh, But I have no pictures of Biden or Trump or anybody else or indictments or none of that kind of stuff, not the uh, stuff that discourages us all week long. We're going to talk about somebody else's politics, okay? We're going to talk about Roman politics, specifically from 284 to 395. This is hopefully going to paint for us a little bit of a picture of what's going on in the life of the church in this period that ends up creating an environment of political stability in the empire within which uh, the Lord providentially brings about some theological stability and theological clarity to the church. So the political environment and the religious environment, often we see in in church history, there's a lot of overlapping, right? And that's the case even still today, all right? We like to think that we just read our Bible and we go to church and we come up with all these amazing conclusions about how to live and what to do, and we really often don't realize how much our own culture political climate of the day can really influence a lot of things about our decisions. I was talking to somebody recently about how um, we have found in our circles, in our reform circles, the whole subject of theonomy, all right, just like flourishing in the sense of, not in the positive sense, but the sense of just exploding in the conversation uh, level as as, the, as we progress further into debauchery on the political level, uh, there's a lot of desire to see something like Christendom kind of reborn and rebuilt. And um, so we're, we're often greatly influenced, not just by the Bible, we're often influenced by our culture as well. So I want to kind of see that in the politics of Rome from 284 to 395. And we're going to begin by talking about a man by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian. He was the Roman emperor from 284 to 305. 284 to 305. Now, there are several things to look at with Diocletian. We're going to talk about the Roman civil wars. The Roman civil wars. The rise of Diocletian to power thing known as the Tetrarchy, which was something of his making. Talk about Christian persecution during this period. And then that 
tetrarchy or the rule of the four uh, comes apart, the failure of the four. And then uh, an event that some call the turning point in the Western world. So let's start by looking at the Roman civil wars. This is kind of a map of the Roman Empire somewhere in the mid portion of the third century. And the Roman civil wars take place between the years of 235 and 284, 235 to 284. Um, Let me just talk about a few things in uh, in this particular period. Um, There is a state of unrest in the empire. You can see from the map itself the empire that prior to 235 was somewhat joined together as one empire. During this period of the civil wars, it becomes broken up into three different sections. Rome ever has this difficulty of maintaining the stability of the fringes, these far out areas to the west, uh, which becomes like France and Spain, or the far out areas to the east, which today we have like Syria. But in those particular days, uh, there were some other empires that, that, that rose up. You see Rome there in the boot of Italy, and it's fairly central, and it's having a hard time controlling things, especially out in the east. There is a <clears throat> revolt around 240 in the eastern portion of the empire that ends up establishing what is known as the Palmyrene Empire. The Palmyrene Empire. There's another revolt in the west of the Roman Empire around 260 uh, that ends up establishing what's known as the Gaelic Roman Empire. And so during these years... uh, There are three basic portions to the empire, and those portions really kind of exist between 240 and around 274 when those empires begin to kind of collapse and get kind of assumed back into into Rome. Diocletian comes on the scene in 284, right? The date of his rule or his ascent to the throne is 20 November 284, And he reigns from 284 to 305. And just a little bit about him, he is a soldier. And this is the case with many of the the emperors in those days. They rise up through the ranks of the military. Uh, One dies, and the the most powerful arm of the army will put their man man forward. Maybe you've seen Gladiator. You know, that's exactly how it happened, I'm sure. I'm just kidding. All right. Um, He becomes quite the statesman and the politician, He is an absolute pagan. He has no sympathy for Christianity uh, whatsoever. He establishes what's known as the Tetrarchy or the Rule of the Four. This is uh, uh, an ancient artifact that they kind of dug up that was on some like a pillar. And this is a picture of the four rulers over the Roman Empire. Let's kind of look at this. On a, uh, on a map to kind of break it down a little bit for you, all right? There are four prefectures, four areas that he breaks up the Roman Empire uh, into. In the east, uh, he rules 
as what is known as an Augusti or an Augusti. And he rules in Nicomedia. Nicomedia is very near modern-day Istanbul, just to kind of help you paint the, the image in your, in your mind. So we're looking at the western, northwestern area of Turkey near the Bosphorus Strait. All right? This is kind of where Nicomedia is. And in that area, Diocletian rules in the east as the Augusti. Now, there's another area in the eastern portion of the empire known as the prefecture of Illyricum. A man by the name of Galerius rules in Illyricum, and he rules as a Caesar. The Augusti is in charge, and the Caesar is like his second in command. And that's the eastern portion of the empire. In the western portion of the empire, it's also broken up into two different areas, There is the prefecture of Italy under a man by the name of Maximian. He is the Augusti, and he rules in Milan. That's interesting. Today we're going to kind of begin in Milan here, and we're going to end in Milan looking at Ambrose here uh, in just a little while. Further out west is Constantius Chorus, who rules as the Caesar in Trier. This is the area of Gaul, kind of modern-day France, all right? So these four areas, let's look at on the map, and here's our, here's our map, all right? So you can see the dividing line of the empire right there between Illyricum and Italy. Uh, that kind of divides the east and the west. Now later, later in the development of the empire, when Constantine moves the, the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, the dividing line between east and west is going to shift just a little further to the east. But again, notice the prefecture of Italy, and that's where we have uh, Maxentius, and Maxentius rules there um, as the Augusti, and in the prefecture of... uh, Let's make sure we don't get that wrong. Um, Yeah, the prefecture of Italy is Maximian. He's the Augusti there. And the prefecture of Illyricum, or the prefecture of, uh, of the Far East, that's where Diocletian is ruling. So the two, the two principal rulers are Diocletian in the East, Maximian in the West. And they have these other two guys kind of underneath them. And the theory was that when the Augusti died, he is going to pass the baton or pass the rule to the Caesar that's under him. One of the things that Rome suffered from was um, the idea of when the father would die, he'd pass this on to his son. Well, the question is, which son? What if he has several sons? What if one son rises up and kills all the other sons? Just like in the book of the days of the judges, right? All right. And um, so we have we have this this, this this constant press for who's going to who's going to rule. And so they set up this nice, neat, and tidy way of passing on power in the nation. It sounded good. It didn't work, uh, it didn't work very long. Right? So during the period of Diocletian, there is a great amount of persecution. Remember we mentioned he's a pagan. Right? So during the years of 284, I think I said, to like 305, um, or 304, 
get that end date, uh, no, 305. Um, <clears throat> he passes four edicts. Edict number one relates to buildings, church structures. When a church structure was found in the empire under this first edict, it was to be burned. Okay? They were not to be allowed to have their own structures. Now, we've mentioned before <clears throat> that uh, somebody asked a question here in the last several weeks about church buildings. Usually, up until about the third century, they're meeting in homes. But we do have some evidence archaeologically that in the third century they began to actually dedicate structures to worship. Um, there is a structure found that dates around the 260s uh, in a little town known as Europa, Dura Europa in modern-day Syria. And it's a house that's been converted into a church. Uh, so that would have been a, a structure then used for the worship of God and maybe ministry throughout the week, teaching, uh, catechizing, baptizing, things such as that. So there were structures, and during this period of 284 to 305, um, Diocletian sees that many of them are burned. A second edict is passed, and this is in relation to the bishops. The bishops of the areas were to be arrested, and they were to force them to sacrifice to the gods... Remember, Rome often thought that the Christians were atheists. That was one of the early charges against the Christians because they only worshipped one God. They didn't worship this multiplicity of gods, and they thought that that's just akin to atheism, right? You're denying the existence of all these gods. They wanted them to sacrifice. This would demoralize the priests, um, <clears throat> and they could often then manipulate the Christians by way of manipulating and controlling the bishops. A third edict is passed, and we're going to put that under the term of stripes, right? And what this is to point to is the idea that if the bishop would make sacrifice, make sacrifice to the gods, then they would be spared punishment. But if not, they were to be beaten, and some were killed. A fourth edict is finally passed, sacrifices. And what this edict did by Diocletian is it made sacrifice obligatory for all Christians. You must sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> they would have a process by which uh, they, would, uh, they, would, they would issue you a, uh, like a certificate. They would often call it like a libelous. And this would basically say that you had, you had sacrificed. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to compare it necessarily to a vaccine card. But anyway, the idea being that you got the libelous, all right? You got the card, and now you could show that card to somebody, and you could say that you'd sacrifice. So you can imagine the kind of compromise that's going to come in on things like this. Some are actually going to sacrifice and get the card. Some are not going to sacrifice, but they have a lot of money, and they can pay off the, uh, the, the government official in the town to get their own libelous. Some will, kind of on a black market type thing, just get their own libelous made, all right? Others will not. Others will just take whatever kind of persecution may come. However, others will simply sacrifice and deny the faith. This becomes a great problem for the church as well, because what do you do after the persecution is over with those people have denied, who have denied the faith? Do you just, like, let them back in? 
uh, and this becomes a problem for the church about knowing what to do. So this period of persecution, it doesn't last the entire time of uh, Diocletian's reign from 284 to 305. It is mainly focused on a period around 303 for about a year. And it's a period that we call in history the Great Persecution. And that's when most of these things are, are taking place. All right. um, Let's look on just a little more. The failure of the four. The tetrarchy does not last. Um, Constantius Chlorus, who has uh, the majority of power in the West, uh, well, Diocletian dies first, uh, but in 306, about a year later, um, Constantius Chlorus, who has the majority of power out in the West, he dies in York up in England, in the, in the area of the, of the UK. Now, the army that is at his disposal is probably one of the most formal armies that, that Rome has, and they, they join together in affirming that the son of Constantius Chlorus, a man by the name of Constantine, will be made their general, their, their, their emperor. They're going to they're gonna, uh, give a system of power to him. Well, <clears throat> this, this is not the way it was set up. It was supposed to go from the Augusti to the Caesar, right? Uh, Constantine was not the Caesar, uh, but he was the son, and now we're back to Rome's old ways of giving power to, you know, our kid, that type, that type thing. Um, <clears throat> Constantius, of course, dies there in 306, and now my button's stuck. Constantine uh, is acclaimed by his army and Constantine then marches on Maxentius. Now, Maxentius, remember, he is the Augusti in the east. He is the one basically in charge in the east. And he marches on Maxentius, at which point there is an event that takes place known as the turning point in the Western world. And let's talk about that. Right? The turning point in the Western world. This is a depiction, it's on some um, archway, um, and it is a depiction of the battle at Milvian Bridge, the battle at Milvian Bridge. You've probably heard this story before, Constantine is marching on Maxentius a day prior to the battle, October the 28th in 312, Constantine supposedly has a vision, and in that vision, he sees this symbol, the chi and the rho. The X is the Greek letter for chi, the, the R that comes up, or looks like P to us, but it's, a, it's the Greek letter rho, chi rho, the first two letters in uh, the name Christos, Christ. Right? Supposedly, he hears this message in the vision, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. He takes this as an indication that God is on his side, and God has told him that he is going to win, but he will only win by doing so under the banner, if you will, of Christ. Now this leads to eventually in 313 to something known as the Edict of Milan, where Christianity is now seen as a legal religion. 
And this establishes eventually Constantine as the head of the Roman Empire. Um, so let's look at Constantine for a moment. And before we do that, let's just back up. We'll stop there. Questions, comments up to this point, right? You're looking for the Bible verses. I don't have any yet. Remember, politics is today, religions later. Yes, sir. Wow. It's a great question. Certainly not the same spelling for Christos. Um, I don't know. Anybody know? The derivation, the etymology of the capital of Egypt, Cairo, is putting those two things together. I don't think they're connected. That can be your homework for this week. Now nobody else wants to ask a question because you get homework. Yes, Tom? Oh, I would imagine, yes. Yeah, this is the, you know, third, fourth century period, so. Yeah, Matt? Now, remember, you're going to have to talk really loud back there. i got this air conditioner blowing in my head, and I'm deaf already, so. They are enforced throughout the empire to differing degrees. Um, Constantius Chlorus and Constantine have more sympathy with the Christians than does Diocletian. Now, keep in mind at the time, they're all pagans at this time. All right? And if we go back further into the 3rd century, um, there are various events that take place that lead the Romans to believe that the reason that they're having such difficulty at certain times is because of the Christians, because the Christians won't sacrifice to the gods. Like if they have, a, they have a famine, or they have a drought, or they have an earthquake, well, this is all the gods, you know, doing against us. And the reason is, is they're judging us because the Christians refuse to sacrifice, so great persecutions break out against the Christians. Now, in the third century, the greatest persecutions were the Decian persecution, and the Valerian persecution in the 250s. And Rome was incredibly unsettled in, in that period. Um, and in fact, Decius and Valerius both uh, were brought to uh, very horrible ends. And this actually became a, a reason for sympathy for the Christians, um, that uh, they should be treated better. And so from the close of 260 to somewhere around you know, the end of the century, was relatively peaceful for the Christians, but in 303 it does ratchet up to the great persecution, and it is an empire-wide persecution. Earlier persecutions in the church, sometimes you've heard that the church was just like, you know, persecuted everywhere in the first two, three hundred years, and that's just, just not the case. Uh, for example, in the first century, the persecution in the 60s under Nero is very localized. It's in Rome. It's not anywhere else, really. Um, toward the end of the first century, I think it's Domitian, uh, there's persecution of the Christians. It's localized. It's not empire-wide. Uh, we really almost get to the third century before we really finally find these massive empire-wide under Decius and Valerius, and then under um, 
Diocletian in particular, this is the worst that it ever gets. The Christians were easy, fair to blame. I mean, they're just right there. We can blame the Christians, all right? Um, are you asking, is that the reason that it becomes unstable in, unstable in Rome? Or? That, is certainly, that is certainly one of the things. We need, we need to stop this. We need to kind of contain this spread of Christianity and contain their influence. And so, yeah. And the growing influence of Christianity on the empire becomes even more visible in the 4th century. Um, until we get to Theodosius I at the end of the 4th century, we'll talk about him in a minute, where he, he basically appoints Christianity as the official religion of the empire. And so, um, <clears throat> all right, so let's, let's jump back in here and let's look at Constantine. And he is known in history as Constantine the Great, 324 to, uh, to 337. Right? A couple of significant events and dates with Constantine. All right? 313, they pass what's known as the Edict of Milan, and he passes this with Licinius, who at this particular point in time is the ruler in the east. Constantine is the ruler in the west. All right? Licinius is the ruler in the east. So now you, now you have two. Remember, he had the Tetrarchy. It's kind of fallen apart, but now we have two. We have Licinius and we have Constantine. And the Edict of Milan is signed in February of 313, and it brings religious toleration to Christianity in the empire. It does not make Rome a Christian empire or a Christian state, if you will. All right? It simply makes Christianity tolerated. Uh, the word they would have used is that it makes it licit. It makes it a legitimate religion. That's the term licit that they would have, that they would have used. Um, think about this in regard to toleration. Men were now free to worship the deity of their choice. Now, they were not all to worship the Christian God, right? Um, Thinking ahead to Sunday school today, Ryan's going to be Sunday school service today. Ryan's going to be preaching on Daniel chapter 4 on Nebuchadnezzar. Some glorious statements that Nebuchadnezzar makes there at the end of Daniel 4. We're not there in, in this. But men are free to worship the deity of their choice. They are free to assemble. They are free to organize churches. Uh, the property that was taken from them under the Diocletian persecution, property that wasn't burned... Uh, was returned to the churches, all right? So they could have their property, their property back. 324, Constantine and Licinius exist in kind of a, you know, unhappy tension for a while. 324, uh, Constantine basically is, is done with Licinius, and there are a series of battles in 324. Uh, you might have heard of the Battle of Adrianople, the Battle of uh, Chrysopolis, different battles, and finally, Licinius falls at the end of 324. By 324, Constantine is now the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. 
We are now back to older days of Rome where there's only one emperor. Um, very quickly, just to mention in 325, this is when the Council of Nicaea is convened or called, and it's called by Constantine. These early ecumenical councils were convened by the Roman emperors, right? attended by the bishops, participated in by the bishops. Uh, also, there were other visitors or maybe elders or deacons in churches or maybe even laymen that would have been present at the councils. But in 325, Constantine calls for the council. In 330, Constantine decides to move the center point of the empire to the east. Now, the principal reason for this is most likely to provide stability. It's always been hard for Rome, being in Italy, in the boot over here, all right, to maintain control in the east, all right? You, you, have, uh, you have a few problems in the west. Uh, you have the Germanic tribes that want to come down. You have the, the Visigoths that want to come down. But just a little bit further um, on the map there to the west, all you have is water. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of problems from the water, all right? But for the further east you get, the more what? The more empires you find. And they keep pressing against Rome, and they press against from Africa, they press against in the area there of modern day like Syria and Jordan. So there's a lot of empires out to the east that constantly are causing problems, and having your capital in Rome is just too far away, right? Um, it's the opposite problem that the Apostle Paul had. Remember the Apostle Paul on his first few missionary journeys, his home base is in Antioch. It's in the east. When he wants to go to Spain... He's tries to, he tries to, to buy in or tries to get the support of the church in Rome. Why? Because he wants to use Rome as like a home base to launch a mission all the way to Spain because Antioch is too far back in the east. Well, here, um, Constantine is in the west. He's in Rome. But he wants to strengthen the empire in the east, so he's got to, he's got to move out there. Where, where are you going to put it? He moves it to a, a, a town, an area known as Byzantium. Byzantium is the name of the town under the Greeks, and he changes the name of the town to Constantinople. Today, it is known as Istanbul. Istanbul. In 337, right before he dies, Constantine is baptized. Now, Constantine is often kind of harassed because he puts off his baptism to the end of his life, right? Constantine wouldn't have been alone in that. Many people in those days would have put baptism off to the end. There is developing this idea that post-baptismal sin cannot be forgiven. At least it can't be forgiven by men, and men have to wait till they see the Lord, right? We mentioned earlier about... Uh, in times of persecution, sometimes you have Christian people who would renounce the faith or give up their copy of the Word of God, which would be tantamount to renouncing the faith, in order to avoid persecution. And after the persecution is over, they come back to the church, and they're repentant, and they're, and they're sad, and they're like, oh, please receive me back in. And there developed this real tension between two groups in the church and one group is called the rigorous, 
And they were the ones that looked at those who had denied the faith or sold copies of the Bible. The rigorous said, well, you can't get back in. We'll forgive you, but you can't come back in the church. Uh, Tertullian was of this stripe of a real rigorous nature. But there were others that were sometimes, by the rigorous, they were kind of dubbed the laxists, all right? They were lax. They were, they, were, they were a little easier on people. Oh, that's terrible what you did. We understand that would have been hard. You're repentant. We forgive you, all right? And come back, come back to the church. I tend to think that's not necessarily laxist. That's just trying to be more biblical. If your brother repents, what do you do for your brother? Keep him out. No. You forgive him. <laughs> and if he repents, you know, three times, seven times, no, 70 times seven, all right? We, we, we forgive, right? So there is grace to be found in the, in the church. And so um, <clears throat> this was a constant tension. Well, Constantine and others have this idea that if I sin after I get baptized, I might be excluded. And so I want to wait till the very end to make sure I've got all my bases covered. And you might sit there and think, well, that's not the best theology. And sure, it's not the best theology uh, at all. This is a pagan emperor of Rome that has some kind of identification with the Christian faith that comes through a dream about signs in heaven. I mean, so he's obviously not being led here by deep study of the word and preaching. Um, But he has some attraction to Christianity, whether or not he was a true Christian, I don't know. I mean, that's, I don't think we have to know. You know, it's 1,700 years ago. He's not trying to get admission to our church, and it's just a study of history. But um, in this, he is baptized. Now, what's interesting about his baptism, Constantine is baptized in 337 by a bishop known as Eusebius of Nicomedia. You might think, where have I heard that name? And you might be thinking of Eusebius of Caesarea, the guy that wrote the ecclesiastical history. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea was a a preacher, a bishop, a church historian, and he writes an ecclesiastical history in which Constantine, I mean, like, glows like gold. Uh, He really loved Constantine, all right? Thought that God had providentially appointed Constantine to preserve the church in this century. And, um, well, that's Eusebius of Caesarea, This is Eusebius of Nicomedia, a little town very near Nicaea. And Eusebius of Nicomedia attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 as the leading bishop representing, guess which party? The Arians. He's an Arian bishop. Now, this is striking because Constantine supported Nicene Christology, but Constantine also supports a unified empire. He's a politician, all right? He wants things to be held together. And by the time we get 12 years away from the Council of Nicaea, Arianism still has a great influence, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But I think this is probably a political move by Constantine to reach out to the Bishop of Nicomedia. Now, obviously, he's in that area The Bishop of Nicomedia would have been the go-to guy. Bishops, by this point, have a geographical area that they're kind of in charge of. Um, But I think it's very interesting that he's baptized by an Arian bishop. Later that year, he dies in 337. 
Now, quickly, just to say a couple of things about Constantine, all right? Constantine and the church. Any, any questions before we go on? Tom? That would make sense. Yes, yes, that is correct. Now, there is a period, and we're going to talk about it here in a minute, for a brief period of time, maybe a year and a half or so, that there is a renewal of persecutions. But it's nothing like under Diocletian, the great persecution in 303. So, yeah, Matt? In the early, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a, just a list of popes in my database, um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I could just, just Google lists of popes, and you'll pull it up there. I hate to say that, but, um, yeah, Billy? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, I can answer that one. And uh, no, the, the, the primacy of that um, singular bishop as the pope uh, is, is still in its very early stages. Now, when we get to the early 5th century, we get to Pope Leo. Pope Leo was one of the first popes or first bishops of Rome that begins to root papal primacy in actual texts of the Bible like uh, Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, that type thing, uh, Petrine primacy. And uh, so Leo is, is greatly significant. And then Gregory, after him, another 100, 200 years or so. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Constantine on the church, his influence on the church, all right? Um, under Constantine, the bishops begin to take a much more central role. And in this move, they're really replacing these pagan priests. We're coming out of a, almost a purely pagan-type religion, and we're now going to have a Christian-type look to it. Bishops will take kind of the place, if you will, of the uh, pagan priests. The bishops are now going to be exempt, for example, from taxes, which the pagan priests would have been exempt from. There's a greater dignity and importance is now afforded to churches in the civil and public square. We see this primacy of the bishops, for example, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, where the bishops are the only ones that are allowed to truly participate. They're the only ones that are allowed to dialogue and go back and forth. So you've heard, for example, of Athanasius, who becomes really the, I think, the hero in the story of the fourth century. Uh, at the time of the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius is a deacon. He comes, he comes with Clement of Alexandria to the Council of Nicaea, but he's just a deacon, and he can't actually talk at the meeting. All right? Even if he were an elder, he couldn't talk. You have to be, have to be a bishop. Um, <clears throat> 
that's, uh, well, uh, let's see, one more thing here. Oh, this is, this is really interesting. Um, the influence of Constantine on church worship. Right? Now, this is from Huso Gonzalez's book, The Story of Christianity, which is a very helpful two-volume church history. And he makes this comment. He said, after Constantine's conversion, Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. Incense, which was used as a sign of respect for the emperor, began appearing in Christian churches. Officiating ministers who until then had worn everyday clothes began dressing in more luxurious garments. Likewise, a number of gestures indicating respect, which were normally made before the emperor, now became part of Christian worship. The custom was also introduced of beginning services with a processional. Choirs were developed, partly in order to give body to that procession. They would like be led in, and they, the choirs would like walk in. Eventually, the congregation came to have a less active role in worship. Everything's about what's happening up here, all right? Everything's about, uh, uh, to use a modern-day term, the stage. And I remember several years ago reading a book by A.W. Tozer, Whatever Happened to Worship? And he talks about the, this, this area up here is, is often called architecturally the rostrum, all right? Um, so if anybody tells you the rostrum, that's what this is up here. But it's, it's often just seen and used as a stage. And so, Tom, Chip. Oh, yes. Oh, we can see a lot of early developments here. All the gesticulations and all the movements and, oh, yeah, Jeff? Okay, yeah, he stole it for you there. All right, so that's Constantine on the church. What about the influence of Constantine within the church? Now, is Constantine a savior of the church or is he a corrupter of the church? And there are two different views on Constantine. I mean, is he the guy that, like, delivered the church from, you know, basic demise and, and created an environment in which she'd be preserved? This is Eusebius, not Eusebius of Nicomedia, but Eusebius of Caesarea, really sees Constantine as, like, the quote-unquote savior of the church in the 4th century, not the capital savior of the church like Jesus, not that kind of... Eusebius was confused, but not that confused. Or is he the corrupter? of the church. This is another, another view of him. So uh, Constantine, his reception within the church, some are all for it, some are very opposed. His, his relationship to the church over the church, Constantine the assumption over the church. Um, Constantine dubs himself what is known as Pontifex Maximus. Pontifus Maximus. It's a term that was used by the pagan high priests. It's taken over by Constantine, and the church gladly gives it to him. Interestingly, we mentioned Pope Leo uh, in the 5th century. Pope Leo will begin to refer to himself as Pontifex Maximus, an original title for a pagan high priest. And... Uh, that's just so discomforting to me when I hear things like that. Or when you hear Mary referred to in the Catholic Church as the Queen of Heaven, and the only place you find that phrase in the Bible is for a pagan 
goddess. Um, I can't imagine Mary wanting to be called the queen of heaven for a lot of reasons, that being one of them. Um, His rule, his responsibility, he sees himself as being responsible to restore the glory of Rome. And he, um, he, he does this through his favors that he is giving here to the church. This begins to bring great unity to the empire. Uh, his role as the self-appointed champion of Christianity, um, there is no question that Constantine is greatly used in the providence of God to bring about stability for the church in these days, uh, although I would not give him the high praise of Eusebius of Caesarea. But he does have a great relationship to the church, great as in um, significant, and um, plays a very vital role in this period in the church. Now, in 337, Constantine the Great dies, uh, and we're going to skip forward a little bit. We're going to talk about a man that rules from 361 to 363, Julian the Apostate. Um, You mentioned, Tom, a little bit ago that... uh, the, uh, the Constantine really brings that stability. Uh, persecution really comes to an end. It does all until a brief time with Julian the Apostate. Just a couple things about him, a few important events. All right? uh, Julian uh, begins to give a significant number of government jobs to pagans. Uh, it is his desire to bring the pagan influence back into uh, the, Roman, the Roman government. Uh, he cancels observance on Sunday. So there is no more uh, freedom as Constantine had granted. There is no more freedom to assemble. Uh, there is, now they, they do assemble, I'm sure, underground, but it would be during the time of, of, of great difficulty. All right? um, he writes a book known as Against the Galileans. You get the title. It's against the followers of Jesus of Galilee. It's against the Christians. He begins to reconstruct and build pagan temples. And interestingly, Julian has a real affinity for the Jewish people. And the idea of the constructing of a third temple, Ezekiel's temple, uh, he begins plans and makes moves to reconstruct a temple in Jerusalem. It does not come to fruition. So when we say he builds pagan temples, a Jewish temple would fall under that kind of category in his, in his mind. He reintroduces the sacrificial system of old Rome, and he dies just a few years after he ascends the throne, fighting the Persians. Again, an eastern group uh, where most of their trouble comes from. It doesn't last long, but this is a brief period of suffering for the church. Now, when Julian uh, passes off the scene there in 363, there are a a series of other emperors. There's nothing really eventful for the Christians. But in 379 to 395 is the rule of a man by the name of Theodosius, Theodosius I. Theodosius I, a couple of significant events and dates uh, about his rule and reign. He rules the east from 379 to 392. So we kind of go back again to kind of a, um, 
a a two-rule system over the Roman Empire. Uh, And then in 392 to 395, for three years, he rules over the whole of the Roman Empire. Theodosius makes a move that no one else had ever made. Theodosius makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's basically illegal not to be a Christian. So think back to Constantine. It's legal to be a Christian. Theodosius, it's illegal to not be a Christian. You have the fusing here of the church and the state. He passes various anti-pagan edicts. Uh, Paganism after Julian uh, enjoyed a a little freedom, uh, but under Theodosian, these would be brought to an end. He is a strong proponent of Nicene Trinitarianism. Now, again, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. We know the Council of Nicaea takes place in 325, and it addresses the issue of Arianism. And some of you are still maybe sitting there going, what is Arianism? Just kind of hang that in your head for like 14 days, and Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll address that. If we all die tomorrow and go see Jesus, it won't matter what Arianism is, all right? These kinds of things only matter now, so we can fight off things like that. There will be no Arians in heaven to defend off, all right? None will come knock on your door to visit you in your mansion or whatever, all right? They, they won't be there. So uh, in 325, Arianism is, is, is dealt a blow, if you will, but it's not a full-fledged mortal wound. It doesn't kill it. In fact, Arianism begins to grow so much in the 4th century that somewhere near the mid-4th century, Jerome, one of the church fathers, the guy that wrote the Latin Vulgate, makes the comment, quote, the whole world has become Arian. Arianism teaches a view of Jesus that Jesus is a creature, basically. And we'll flesh that out more later. But by the time of the end of the 4th century, after the Council of Constantinople, Arianism is is decidedly rooted out of the empire. There are still some pockets, and it will continue to plague things uh, for years to come. Even to today, we still face the doctrines of Arianism. But um, here, Theodosius is a strong proponent of Nicene Trinitarianism. He is zealous for this Nicene Trinitarianism. He's zealous for the faith but he is also a rather impulsive man. And this brings us to one final story about Ambrose. Ambrose is the bishop of Milan. You might remember earlier we were at Milan for the Edict of Milan in 313 when Christianity became a legitimate religion. Now we're back at Milan and we're looking at Ambrose. Ambrose... um, lives from 339 to 397. He is a lawyer, politician, turned bishop. And in 374, he is appointed to be the Bishop of Milan. He is converted, baptized, ordained, and consecrated, almost like back-to-back, all right? You've probably heard of Ambrose if you've done any reading by Augustine. Uh, Some of the guys um, in a book study we had a year or two ago We read Augustine's Confessions, and Ambrose becomes very instrumental in uh, Augustine's exposure to the gospel and uh, what ultimately leads to his conversion. Um, 
He is a strong preacher, and he is a man of great courage. There is an event that takes place in his ministry in Milan that involves Theodosius I. And it's a great story just in its own right, but it's, it's, it's pertinent to this issue to show the relationship of the church and uh, the state. In the year 390, uh, there was a charioteer that was from Thessalonica that was a homosexual man, or at least it was reported that he was. He was a, a favorite, if you will, in the chariot races, and in 390, finding out him to be a homosexual, Theodosius has him imprisoned. Riots break out. He is not released. The governor and a few others were killed in the, uh, in the riots, and the charioteer was then freed. Theodosius hears of these difficulties that have arisen from this arrest and the riot and the, uh, the killing of the governor and a few other officials. Theodosius is incensed. Theodosius exacts revenge. What he does is he announces another chariot race, and the crowds arrive at the chariot race. The gates are locked, and some 7,000 people are trapped inside the arena, at which time Theodosius unleashes his soldiers and kills 7,000 people that are there to watch the chariot races. Ambrose hears what's happened. You can imagine Ambrose is incensed himself. He writes an angry letter to Theodosius and demands that Theodosius repent. Now, keep in mind what's happening here. Theodosius, the Roman emperor in Constantinople, uh, enacts this revenge on a group of people in Thessalonica. Ambrose, a mere bishop in Milan. This is not the bishop of Rome. Uh, this is in no way some kind of papal power you know, trip. Ambrose writes a letter to Theodosius demanding his repentance, at which he says, quote, I exhort, I beg, I entreat, I admonish you, because it is grief to me that the perishing of so many innocent is of no grief to you, and now I call you to repent. To which Theodosius refuses. Theodosius sometime later is in Milan, and he goes to church to take the Lord's Supper. Ambrose refuses him. He refuses the emperor of Rome. I mean, that had to be like, don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be there to fly on the wall and see what's going on? <clears throat> You're thinking, no, I like it today. I want to live after the 1689 was written. I like to be a Reformed Baptist. I, I want to be there. I mean, I love the confession, but I, I, I'd love to have been there just to see this. What courage it must have taken. I forget how many times Theodosius came back to take the Lord's Supper Ambrose continued to refuse him until he finally repented and came, the story has, on his knees to receive the Lord's Supper from the hand of the bishop. 
Um, Theodosius eventually does obey. And this marks the first time where the church has assumed power over the state. Now, there's a lot in there, and I'm not advocating for church power over the state. Not what I'm arguing for. It's a historical story, so I approach this on the one hand from just a historical academic perspective. It's just what happened. Um, There's corruption in this. It's corruption that the state kind of almost brought upon itself by fusing itself to the church. But what I want you to see here is that this is the environment that's taking place now in the church where the emperor is, and this is, there's there's some validity to this, the emperor is a member of the church. And Ambrose is a pastor in the church. And Ambrose has a right and a responsibility to fence the table. Theodosius is a man who is guilty of the death of 7,000 people. And Ambrose says, you're not coming to the table today. That's right. That's good. I can, I can admire that. I admire that level of courage. I admire that level of integrity. Now, I don't admire the relationship the church has to the state in this particular scenario. But in this scene, Theodosius is a confessing member of the church, and he is barred from the table. If someone came to visit our church, and they were from some other part of the country, and we knew that they were guilty of the sin of killing 7,000 people and murdering them, we would say no. <laughs> we would bar them from the table. Why? Because, because they're, what, they, what they do and what they say are what? They don't, they don't match, do they? He's undoing his profession by what he, what he does. This is the political environment of the day, and this is why I wanted to talk politics just a little bit. It is straight up 2 o'clock. Anybody have a dying question that they can ask in 10 seconds? Jeff. Yeah, so much for, so much for that. And uh, <laughs> not at that moment. And, yeah, sometimes you overname your kid. But, uh, <laughs> all right, anything else? All righty. Well, Lord willing, next Sunday we will be having our covenanting service in the evening down at Heritage. And then a couple weeks from now we'll come back and we'll talk about religion in the fourth century, this same basic period, and begin to get into the councils and what's happening there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these moments we've had. We ask, O oh God, your blessing uh, as we move to a time of corporate worship. We ask, Father, that you would use the various elements of worship to draw our hearts away after the Lord Jesus Christ. May he be exalted, and may our souls be encouraged in him. We ask these things in Christ's name.